Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include trader recalculations and the effect on yields of U.S. Treasuries, my interview with Built Technologies' Riley Thomas on the economic headwinds facing builders and an overview of the construction management industry, and consumer confidence. Thanks to today's podcast sponsor, Built Technologies, construction real estate solutions for better financial management. Improve business performance with faster, smarter tools for all stages of the property life cycle. To learn more, visit getbuilt.com. Overall demand continues to exceed supply, which has kept inflation stubbornly high. As a result, the market has been forced to recalculate that rates will remain at a higher level for longer. February ended on a quiet note, though the yield on 10-year U.S. Treasury notes rose 39 basis points over the course of the month, and six-month U.S. Treasury bills rose as high as 5.14% yesterday, the highest since 2007. The steep jump in yields has reduced any incentive for risk. Why put your money in a risky asset during uncertain economic times when you can make more than a 5% rate over a six-month period? It's a good question. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome to the show Riley Thomas, SVP of Revenue at Built Technologies, for a little overview on the construction management industry and to also talk about some of the economic headwinds facing builders. At Built, he leads strategic account initiatives focused on providing clear value to some of Built's top customers and prospects. Can you give a quick overview of what's going on across the construction industry? At least on the residential side, it seems like supply is having a really hard time keeping up with demand due to a variety of factors such as supply chain and labor issues. Yeah, I think um, to be specific, construction can be tranched into th- kind of three categories. So we'll break them down as, as kind of our consumer business, which would be you know single family residential more the production home builder business, which would be your uh, Lennars and Pulte's. And then of course, large balance commercial real estate. And then and then you have some fringe things like small business lending, et cetera. Um, what we've seen for sure, and it's been uh, more pervasive probably in the last six months than um, in the last five years, is a general slowdown in new starts on the single family residential. And I, I believe that's directly correlated to rates. Um, If you think about interest rates, they kind of act like gravity. Um, The lower they are, the less gravity there is. So asset values go up. Um, Thus, the home prices are going up, as we've seen around the country. Um, As interest rates uh, basically rise, gravity starts to pull that back down. So your asset values will start to stabilize, or at least that's the hope that the Fed has. So what we're seeing here is kind of a little bit of, uh, um, I would sell shakiness um, in the last half of the year where some of those single family new starts uh, slowed down, right? If you're going to build your dream home and then all of a sudden like your monthly uh, kind of payment went from 2000 to 4000, that changes your thought process on when to start that. So we definitely see a slowdown on the SFR side. Um, that being said, production home builders started to draw back a little bit as they started to kind of see the spec to pre-sold ratios uh, start to increase as well and or decrease. So the actual, the pre-solds were, were going down. Um, but commercial real estate, 
I think has been actually pretty stable with the exception of office. And we can talk about that. And that's probably something we should touch on. But I would say that the smart commercial developers realize that most projects are 24 or 36 month build, and they want to have new inventory um, when we kind of get out of this lull. And so they're willing to kind of build into their pro forma, higher rates, higher cost of capital, because they want the best product when it arrives. So that's kind of the breakout so far, but happy to dive into any of those specifics. Yeah. And I should say, I love that analogy about rates and, and gravity uh, and the, the impact on asset values. That's a good way for people to understand it. So you, you mentioned there, these projects take 24 to 36 months. And, and I want to ask you, what is a typical deal flow for a construction project from the idea to proposal to completion and ultimately sale to the end buyer? Yeah. So um, again, you gotta, you can't, um, you can't peanut, peanut butter spread it. Like uh, if you're going to be single family or production home builder or CRE, um, the, the time will um, be exacerbated by the complexity, but then now it's even exacerbated by the supply chain problems that we've seen. Uh, I kind of joke, I've got two members of my team who are building kind of, um, I would say custom homes. And they're, they were supposed to be in their homes in May of the last year, and they're still not in those homes. And that's a combination of one, we didn't have materials, two, we had a shortage of labor, three, there's just general requirements from like the municipalities to, to do things that are also backed up. Um, and so you saw this kind of what I would call quagmire or quicksand that came out of the, the COVID era. Um, and that has just still, we still have not cleared that. So there's definitely um, a slowdown in being able to go from an idea to have the proper zoning and forms um, to go ahead and actually go to sticks and bricks. And if you're building a luxury home, sometimes that's taking 18 months to two years now, whereas it should have been done in 12. Uh, our production home builders, they have machines, so they're still pretty quick. Like, I don't think their timing has been exacerbated more than probably 20%. And if it was 20%, it was probably because I didn't get the right trades on the job or the trades moved off the job to another job because there was a shortage of labor or worst case, it was materials. Like we had a concrete shortage and, you know, the smart developers around town here in Nashville were actually trucking in concrete from China in shipping containers and having it put on the job site because the local um concrete uh basically delivery system was broken and so that was definitely a slowdown you can't put concrete in you can't start your framing and then ultimately it just kind of is a trickle down effect um large commercial real estate you know i was walking to the local coffee shop today and there's a giant hole and that hole has sat for a long time and the reason for that is a conflict between the developer and the contractor uh they did a fixed bid like uh and basically said I can't make money in this fixed bid. I've got to get out of this contract with the developer. The developer fought him on it. And sure enough, we, we've seen a change of guard where there's now a new contractor on there. So that project probably should have been on the fifth or sixth story by now. It hasn't even broken um, ground other than the big hole. So that's what we're seeing. It's definitely kind of a case by case. Um, but for you know, to kind of answer your question directly on the large balance commercial real estate stuff, that can be anywhere from 24 to 48 months. Um, and it really is contingent on the complexity of the project. I'm realizing you and I should should have done three separate interviews here, one for CRE, one for multifamily, one for uh, single yeah. family housing. And but uh, I think I think this podcast as a mortgage banking podcast, it's it's geared toward 
uh, single family or, or multifamily residential lending. Uh, I know a huge part of Built's business is on the commercial side. Maybe, maybe this question is broad enough to to encompass all three of those channels, but let's talk about higher rates for a second. You, you talked sure. about it acting like gravity for asset prices. Is it as simple as higher rates puts a damper on everything? There were the supply chain issues, labor costs have increased as well. Rates, after a little relief, have shot back up here with uh, some of the Fed's recent hawkish uh, verbiage and actions. I think housing is a unique, unique category. Here's why, right? You know, human, as humans, we need food, water, air, and shelter, right? So housing is one of those things that doesn't always follow the rate environment because it is one of our basic needs. Now, it's well known in the United States that we have a massive undersupply of housing relative to the population growth. And if you want to look backwards in time and see why this occurred, um, because coming out of the 0708 crash, we decided not to build at the rate of the population increase. So now we have this undersupply. It's also harder to build. Like raw land is really hard to find. And if there is raw land, you now have a lot of restrictions based off of the municipality to go vertical and to build kind of more density. And so all of those things have exacerbated this problem. And um, there's a great book of um, by Howard Marsh called Mastering the Market Cycle that has a really great chart in there. You should look at it, but of of just this, this miss between housing supply and, and demand. And so even though rates have gone up, um, you definitely saw this slowdown um, and you, you saw kind of what was happening. But in certain markets um, where that undersupply is so pervasive, because it's a basic human need, you still see it growing, albeit a little slower and tapered. Um, but I think that's going to only continue, right? We need shelter. And so how we get that, that's going to be really interesting. I think my hypothesis is we're going to have to do a lot more multifamily um, simply because of the density per square foot um, enables us to build faster and go vertical. Um, and because of our challenges to kind of get raw land um, close to cities where people are going to live, work and play. And so that that's my gut um, that says over the course of the next decade or so, you're going to see that continual coastal inflow from, you know, our coastal states, our high tax states into these secondary cities like in Nashville. Um, and that's where you're going to see most of this kind of growth come from. Um, but I, I'll pause there and, and see if you have any following questions. I think the the natural follow up there is how do builders typically respond when affordability dwindles? Good question. Um, the answer is I think it's kind of idiosyncratic to the local market, and what I mean by that is if the affordability isn't there and they don't see those pre-solds, they're probably going to draw back on building new spec homes. Um, and that's at least the case that you kind of saw with some of the big production home builders. How long they do that is probably contingent on whether they're a public company or a private company. Because as a public company, you've got to continue to show that you're going to have uh, future earnings and those earnings per shares are going to increase. And so my gut is the publics are saying, um, we understand that the rate environment should, like gravity, kind of pull down asset values, which would make housing more affordable for kind of the the 
the whole, like I would say the community in general. Um, that being said, the builders will continue to build based off of kind of their business fundamentals and how strong their balance sheet is. Whereas if you're a builder who's kind of building onesie twosie or three to four, and you're like, oh, well, I'm going to put my whole basket of kind of net worth in that next build, you may be a little more timid um, and you may draw back. And you kind of see that around where I live, where you started to see raw land that says build to suit. A few years ago, you never saw build to suit. They build the spec regardless um, because they knew they could flip it. But now we're seeing kind of where a builder has bought raw land and they're putting a sign out front that says build to suit and they're trying to lock in a buyer before they even go vertical on that project. Yeah, let's talk about deals for a second. And I had I had some notes before we started this call that said these deals are taking shape with lower leverage, greater surveilling an increased focus on asset management. Can you explain kind of those those three components and, and what's going on, what you're currently seeing? For sure. And you want me to focus this on the, the consumer side of the business because it is, I've got two different opinions on the commercial side. So I'll, I'll focus on consumer. Um, yeah, definitely. You, you, you see that the banks have tightened their credit policy and that's simply um, at the advice of the regulator in general, right? So we have more expensive loans, right? Banks are in the business of being paid back and they use the five C's of credit as their heuristic to do it. So they want to know that the person or, or entity that is borrowing from them will have the ability to cover the debt service coverage. And if the loan rate is too high and all of a sudden you're overextended, then um, the bank is in a precarious situation. Bankers don't like risk. Um, they're in the business of demitigating risk. So the answer there is they're asking clients to come to the table with more money given the rate increase. And then, of course, that changes the dynamic of how many people can do that and when they can do it. So um, I don't know if that answered your question, but I'm happy to do a follow up. I mean, you can talk about the the commercial side of things too. What, what were your thoughts on that? I know you said you could answer it a couple of different ways. Yeah. So I definitely see a pullback from our large money center banks doing construction deals. They've actually kind of like closed the credit box, um, meaning they will not take new development deals at all, um, which leaves a different market opportunity in the commercial segment. So you've got non-bank lenders, private equity and private capital who are coming in and saying, yeah, we'll do the deal. We're going to pencil it at, say, 1200 basis points. Um, and the developers like, yeah, I, I've got to do it because that's the only one who will lend to me. There's also some very specific construction focused banks who are also going to lend during this um, perceived downturn. And I say perceived because we kind of don't know yet whether it's an actual downturn or not, because you know the employment rate is still doing really well. So I would say that it, it's kind of unique because the the large banks are saying no, but we still have the ability to get capital from um, the secondary market and some specialized banks. And those banks are requiring, I've met with many of them, really strong LTV. Um, so they can almost de-risk the investment in and of itself. Yeah. I, I want to ask you, are there times when, or I guess what sort of economic conditions out there favor commercial building versus favoring residential building does it is it economic condition dependent again loaded question so let me un <laughs> unpack that right uh 
Yes and yes. Um, the the answer is so. Let let's just use a simple example. If you have a high employment rate, and we're going to ignore COVID for a second, but let's assume that everybody goes to the office to do their job, right? And you got a high employment rate, you need more office space. Guess what? You're going to build more office space. If you have more people employed, then they have more money, disposable income. They're probably going to travel, so hospitality goes up. If you have more people employed and they want that new TV from Best Buy, they're probably going to buy it, which means you need more infrastructure to get that TV to the person who is employed, right? So it is directly correlated to the kind of macroeconomic conditions. Um, same goes with the the consumer side of the house, right? If uh, it's the wealth effect, right? As asset values go up, we feel more wealthy. Everybody else around us feels more wealthy. And then we're we're going to kind of move to the, that first home or that second home. And we feel really great because we just sold our first home for $500,000 and we got into it at $200,000. So we're going to go up to the next one. So I do think that macro is a bit of kind of a driving factor for optimism. And when there's optimism, usually there's growth. Um, and when there's pessimism, if the pendulum swings to the left, People are a little more tepid or timid, if if that makes sense. It does make sense. So so following up, I guess I want to close by asking you, aside from saying lower rates would help, what conditions are are you looking for out there or hoping things move towards to facilitate uh, more projects or, or make things easier for builders? Yeah, I, I really think the crux of the in- issue is really land supply. If we're looking at residential housing, it is harder and harder for builders to find lot supply and within the communities around them go vertical. Um, If you look at California as an example, it is incredibly difficult to build a development um, and it takes way too long. So going back to my earlier comment about this um, kind of supply imbalance relative to the need for shelter, uh, we have to make it easier to one, acquire raw land and go vertical. And that's more of a local government issue. So um, if, if we could fix that challenge, gosh, we could fix some of this housing. Um, it's also making it exciting and also what I would say enticing for these developers to build um, what I would call single family and single family in different tranches. It's not just $3 million luxury homes. It's that starter home. And being able to do that quickly, I, I think, um, you know, if I forecasted, the builders are going to get more efficient. They're going to start using technology. They're going to be able to build for less as long as the material prices don't continue to go up, right? They're going to, we'll get to some module building over the next decade and, and it will become less of every house as a prototype to more of a scale business. Um, so you can drop the affordability from just being a better, more efficient builder. But if actually building it, meaning getting the lot, getting the permits, getting the zoning continues to go up in price, all the gains on productivity from being able to build it better will be wiped away by the gains of actually being able to build it on that lot. Yeah, and that's, that's a very good point. On the residential side of things, home building typically leads the economy out of a recession. And, and you you actually said, well, it's not like we're in a recession or even necessarily going to one, but that is a silver lining if, if there is an economic downturn. I thought this conversation was highly, highly informative. I want to thank you very much for making the time and uh, hopefully we'll have you back on soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Robbie. Economic data released yesterday included a weaker than expected consumer confidence report for February, driven entirely by consumers' short-term outlook being considerably less upbeat 
about their income prospects than previously recorded. That view is hampering plans to buy homes, automobiles, and major appliances. We also learned that U.S. house prices rose 8.4% over last year, according to the FHFA House Price Index. However, house price appreciation continued to wane in the fourth quarter, and home prices fell 0.1% in December amid tighter mortgage rates and a decline in mortgage applications. Today's economic calendar kicked off with MBA mortgage applications, which decreased 5.7% from one week earlier, after the 30-year fixed rate increased to 6.7% last week, the highest rate since November of 2022. Mortgage rates have jumped 50 basis points over the past month, which is pretty unfortunate. Later this morning brings S&P Global Manufacturing PMI, ISM Manufacturing PMI, January Construction Spending, and remarks from Minneapolis Fed President Kashkari. We begin the day with the agency 30-year MBS prices unchanged and the 10-year yielding 3.93 after closing yesterday at 3.92%. The two-year sits up at 4.83%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. You can retire to New York City, where you say, the city, and expect everyone to know you mean Manhattan. You can get into a four-hour argument about how to get from Columbus Circle to Battery Park, but can't find Wisconsin on a map. <laughs> you think Central Park is nature, and you believe being able to swear at people in their own language makes you multilingual. You've worn out a car horn if you have a car, and you think eye contact is an act of aggression. Or you can move to Colorado, where you carry your $3,000 mountain bike atop your $500 car. You tell your husband to pick up granola on his way home, so he stops at the daycare center. A pass does not involve a football or dating, and the top of your head is bald, but you still have a ponytail. Thanks to today's podcast sponsor, Built Technologies. Construction real estate solutions for better financial management. Improve business performance with faster, smarter tools for all stages of the property life cycle. To learn more, visit getbuilt.com. Questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities? Send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search mortgage news on any platform you get your podcast from.